I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with the Jewish Journal. Civil war, child soldiers, sex slaves, underground torture chambers, and an army of women rebels. This probably sounds like the stuff of a dystopian sci-fi film to you. But the tragic truth is that this is a reality today. Northern Syria 2014, the lives of the citizens of the area are already pretty dark, but their lives are about to become a hell on earth. The Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS, manages to overrun the Assad loyalists and maintain a stronghold in the area. Women are raped and forced to bear children who are then taken from them and trained to kill. Everybody is in danger of being arrested, tortured, and killed. Into this hellhole steps Efrat Lachter. Lachter, right? Efrat Lachter. Efrat is an investigative journalist for Ulpan Shishi, Israel's primetime weekly news show on Friday evenings. She has a master's from Tel Aviv University in political science and government. A few months ago, Efrat flew into the center of the storm, Raqqa, Syria. She came back with a story which, had it not been documented, would have been hard to believe. We are super thrilled to have Eflat with us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> so tell us what it's like to, I mean, I, as I understand now, this is your third time in Syria. That's true. It's the third time in the region. I've been to Iraq twice and this time Syria. Ah, okay. So then what, what is it like to, first of all, how did you get there? And what is it like stepping in the soil of such a heated place? Well, it's actually funny because today I spoke with a friend and he said, how did it feel this time? Weren't you really scared? And I said, this time when I went, when we landed in Iraq, I almost felt like home because it's the <laughs> third time I'm there. I was much more scared about what's going to be like to cross the border into Syria than Iraq. Um, but it is, it is hell on earth. That's the truth. Not uh, first when you get there, when you get there, uh, you land in Irbil, which is a a city in North Iraq that today is actually doing not so bad. It's uh, it's the Kurdish uh, um, region. Yes. And they're actually developing the place. But the first time I was there, it was still ISIS in control. And that was uh, 2015. Uh, so all of Northern uh, Syria, Northern Iraq and Syria were threatened by ISIS. And it was war going on. And that trip, I had a mission. Um, the purpose was to go and meet women that were uh, released from ISIS uh, captivity after being sex-slaved by them. And we came there. There was this uh, Jewish guy who was helping them, actually, to release them, paying ransom for these women. And we came and we met a few. And, well, like you mentioned, I'm a journalist. I'm working in this field since 20. Uh, for nine years, <laughs> and I did a lot of stories, but this meeting with these women is something different than anything I ever did before, and I really remember the first meeting sitting in a tent in a refugee camp in northern Iraq and meeting a woman that was sex slave by ISIS and, and listening to her story for the first time, and back then, it wasn't common knowledge in the world what was going on. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, the world pretty much ignored the situation there, and like it ignores it now. Yeah, uh, that's true. Oh, but that's... I think today people have more awareness to what happened to the Yazidi women 
Um, and back then it wasn't wasn't something people talked about so much. And I remember her, she, her name was Lali, and she talked about what happened to her and how ISIS uh, took control over her village, Sinjar, which um, was actually a major event because it was broadcasted. And I, not in Israeli TV, we're not so good in foreign affairs, unfortunately. But I remember watching CNN every day and, and trying to follow up on what's going on in this village, Sinjar, that back then... people didn't know much about and uh, what I remembered was they made um, this address with stones saying help us so that what first triggered me to, to go there because after five days of people watching this uh, these people that are crying for help from the world and not given uh, and then being kidnapped and uh, sold into slavery and I really wanted to see what's happening there, and that's where I met Lali. That's why I, I went to see her. And that first trip really made a, a serious impression on me, so bad that um, so deep, I would say, that a year after, uh, when the battle to free Mosul was uh, announced, I said, "I must go again. I have to see how they freed this uh, city." And Mosul are just uh, I'm remembering it. Um, it was the capital of the Avisis. Uh, for almost four years, people lived there under ISIS control. Mm-hmm. So I went to see the battle, and, and that was actually the second trip. And back then, uh, I was very thrilled to come and see and, and understand what's going on, and, and there was help from the coalition. And it was actually uh, very close to when uh, Obama finished his term, and that was like the biggest last thing he's going to do in foreign affairs. He's going to take over uh, Mosul, and he said... It's going to be like a few weeks. It actually took nine months. And being there, it was very easy for me to understand that it's not going to take a few weeks because not unlike it was uh, described in the media, when I was there, I saw this is much more complicated and ISIS are putting a fight. And in the end, actually, like I said, nine uh, months later, Mosul was freed. But still, there was one city, another capital of ISIS this time in Syria, that was not. Mm-hmm. And then it took me another two years. <laughs> and the city is? Araka. 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 And that was my last trip because I wanted to, to go and see for myself the last city what, that was the stronghold of ISIS, how it looks today after it was freed. So that was my uh, last trip now. So that is it? Sounds is like it? kind of an obsession. <laughs> uh, She's calling it home. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not really. Only Iraq, not Syria. No, well... <laughs> I, I don't know, obsession has maybe um, a bad... Uh, Connotation. Yeah. yeah. So maybe it's not the right thing. Passion. Yeah. Passion or I would say fascination. Passion. Yeah, well, after you meet someone, and I really meet people who have been through hard things in their life all the time, but these people had a story that was not told, and I felt like it's real journalism, meeting them and giving them a microphone and hearing their stories and bringing it back. And I felt like it's more than just work, right? It's not work. It's something that I really feel that I need to do. And uh, I feel it's powerful. And, and it touched me. And also hearing these stories that were really unbelievable and meeting these people and their children, I, it's something that doesn't leave you. It, it lives with you. On, right. And Maybe because if also that... It's so close. 
Well, right? And it could easily be us. That's, that's a good point. I think most people don't think that. They see it like it's on a different planet. But it's like 500 kilometers away. Right. And I can easily see it happening because we are threatened from all around. And it's not so hard, apparently, to take over uh, people and populations. And it happens. And terror groups are, are threatening us. So I want to think that it cannot happen. But... But we, you know, our, uh, our people have been through some uh, hard times in the past. And it, I think it could happen to anyone. Can you tell us, you said her name was? Lali. Lali. Yeah. Lali. So can you tell us maybe a bit about her story? Yes. So Lali was 23 when I met her. Uh, she had a son that was two years old. And she was captured when she was in Xinjiang in her house. Like 3,400 other girls with her child. And uh, what she told me was, well, I actually had a very, very powerful experience with her because I got into the tent and all of her family was around and she knew I was coming. People told her I'm going to come and going to interview her. So I just walked in and I was sure that, you know, the interview will be like every other interview I do in, in Israel or other places. But she didn't speak. I mean, I asked her, can you tell me about what happened to you? And she didn't really say. And then in like a minute of intuition, I don't know how to, something like that, I, I asked the translator if it's okay to tell all the people to get out of the tent. Now, it was very impolite of me. How many people were there? Uh, I don't know, maybe like 12. Uh, but there were men there. Mm -hmm. And then they walked out. And after they walked out, she said, I cannot talk about it because in our community you are not allowed to say you've been raped because then your husband cannot take you back and that was a really major shock for me and she told me that she was there for three months and this ISIS fighter who bought her were, was raping her in front of her son and when he was crying was hitting him and then when she lost her mind and was not able to satisfy him anymore uh, he sold her again and again and again until she got back to her family because she was sold to a man who was an ideologist they just wanted the money and then and then she got out so i think you can understand why this story is something that really lives on with you and like her i met other women who also told this story so i've been i felt like i have an obligation to keep on following this and these women uh eventually i mean some of them not all of them there's you said 3400 women from sinjal yeah specifically mm -hmm. but there are more yazidi women from other areas there are more wherever isis went they uh what what uh, abu bakr al-baghdadi said the leader of isis is that women who are not muslim and are not sunni they are not human beings and therefore they are available to whoever who wants to do And one of actually the resources for ISIS was women trading. They were women trafficking. That's what they did. Right. Mm -hmm. We so, know how many women were enslaved uh, or tra trafficked by the caliphate. So there are thousands. Thousands. Yes. So these women, some of them eventually uh, decide to fight back. Yes. So that was the amazing story I I found out now on this recent trip that 
I really did not think there was any hope there. Uh, I told you I went to the Battle of Mosul that was supposed to be hopeful right here. They're going to uh, conquer this place and, and defeat the, khalif, the Khalifut, uh, defeat ISIS. But it wasn't so easy. And I also thought that if they are not even able to speak about what happened to them, so how will they be ever recovered from this experience? They cannot get treatment. So what future do they have? But this time in Syria, I had a really nice surprise, I would say, that I found out in this hell, in like the worst place on earth anyone can imagine, and the last place on earth any can, anyone can imagine something like this happening, there was actually a woman revolution. Uh, women that understood really at the beginning of this that if they join the forces and fight uh, to liberate the area from ISIS, they will also liberate themselves. It's really unbelievable. It's like, uh, it sounds like a movie, right? But it happened. I met these women. Um, it's not the same women as the ones that were sex slaved, but the sex slaves were liberated by other women. And that's what I found out this trip. I interviewed uh, women from the YPG, which is the Kurdish uh, forces mm-hmm. in northern Syria. And and they told me that what's, what they are most proud of is how they liberated women from Raqqa, women that were uh, and there's, there, there, in captivity. There's no women that uh, were in captivity that then joined the forces? No, they're not yet. Um Hopefully one day. Mm-hmm. I met one, uh, one. it's hard to say woman because she was like a girl. She's like 19 now. Jesus. Yeah. But she told me, she's from Dirazul. She's 19 now. Yes. Meaning she was born in 2000. Right. There, there's, yeah, that's why I'm saying it's, uh, it's like a girl. But she, she's from Dirazul. And she said, she's not Kurdish, she's Arab. Uh, and she told me that uh, ISIS came to Dirazul and conquered her town and killed her brother and she saw her friends being raped and being killed and and she decided she's gonna join the arms the army so the ypg so she wouldn't be a part of this that she will be able to defend herself she said i'm gonna take the weapon to my own hand i'm gonna revenge to take revenge on what happened to my brother and i i i'd rather die than anything like this happening to me and she did and her family uh were not approving of this because, like I said, she was Arab, she wasn't Kurdish, and she joined the Kurdish uh, fighters. And also she was 17, and, and they were worried about this, but she did it. And It's interesting because I, I saw the, the, that bit in the article, and I was wondering whether they objected because of the culture or because they were worried for her life. So I guess the answer is um, both. Culture. Yeah, it's yeah. both. Um and also, what's to, just to make it more complicated, uh, her older brother is um, fighting for the Assad regime, hmm. which means now they're on opposite sides. Because let's explain to our audience that Assad, well, he's against the courts, basically. He wants to conquer all these lands. Mm-hmm. And what happens to the Kurds? Who knows? Yeah, but I interrupted you. So you were you were saying that she went against her parents. Yeah, and and she said that at one point there was uh, this battle uh, in El Omar, and she and they caught two ISIS fighters there, and they were afraid they're gonna explode, so they they figured they must kill them, and 
her friends and her commander said, you're not going in. You're too involved. And she said, no, this is my time now. My brother was killed by ISIS, and now it's my time to, reve to take revenge. And she says that if you saw the piece with a smile. And she described how she shot an ISIS fighter and how she killed him. And you think... Well, it's a good thing that she was able to feel powerful and and kill a man and feel like uh, this is a revenge for her dead brother. But on the other hand, you see her face and she looks like a child and she takes pride of killing someone it who deserves it. Execution style, though, meaning yes. they, they were in captivity and... I have no mercy for him, but I'm I'm just no. saying that it's what an awful Isn't it to world. Get the Geneva law. Just, just yeah. <laughs> I don't think they even know where Geneva is. And they actually no, they actually they're pretty good at uh, yeah. at taking prisoners, and that that's the problem. Actually, one of the problems now that they have so many uh, ISIS. Captured, yes, they I, have ISIS prisoners. The a courts lot, like seventy thousand, even what? more, and now they have to figure out. No, I'm sorry, seventy thousand in a refugee camp, but. Almost half of it are people who uh, cooperated with ISIS and oh, uh, women that were with ISIS, kids that were born for ISIS fighters. And now they have to deal with all these people and they're not killing them because they're Kurds and they're good people. But it's really hard to feed all these people who are now in prison. Yeah. So you reach to that haven of, of women. Can you tell us about that place? Yes. Yeah, so... So like I said, the women are, uh, were very smart to realize pretty soon that if they join the war and fight, not like uh, not as part of a special unit only, uh, women can do this and that. No, they do everything, women there, everything. Uh, and they fight next to men, just equal, totally equal. And once they did that, no one can now tell them, okay, so now go back to the kitchen. It's too late for that. And they realized that. And it's a, it's a very smart thing. I actually thought about about my grandmother, who was here in 48 when they, uh, at the beginning of the country, and also the women were part of what happened mm -hmm. here. And that's why I think Israel is one of, you know, always had, uh, women always had the right to, for you know, to choose an election, everything, to mm -hmm. vote, to... Woman prime minister, fairly early on. Yes, so women yeah. here always were equal. And they figure out, okay, we're building a new thing now. Now ISIS is gone. We have this uh, area. We're going to call it Rojava, which is a new federation in northern Syria. And here in Rojava, women are equal to men. And it's not only in the army. It's also, uh, I interviewed the prime minister of, uh, no, uh, the mayor. <laughs> the mayor, yeah. yeah of, uh... The governor of Araka, mm -hmm. which is a 30-year-old woman. Yeah. That's wow. uh, and just to remember you to remind you before that the governor was uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, so think what a crazy shift that is, the the leader of ISIS and now it's this thirty-year-old woman. What is it about like uh, Kurdish culture that 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 promote? I mean, what's the, what differentiates? I mean, they're Muslim, right? Yes, but they're not so religious. They're I see. So it's the it's the secularism. They are secular. And They've been haunted throughout history. They don't have a country, uh, and they're spread all over the place. Different language, right? They speak different language. They don't want to, you know, they're very offended if anyone says they're Arab because they don't speak Arabic, so they're not Arabs, right? That's the definition. Mm -hmm. If your mother tongue is Arab and they're... They speak Kurdish? Yes. 
I see, which is like sounds like Arabic. Mm, not, not really. Persian, I would say. Mm, it's Turkish. Very different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's something else. So, so, but, the, so they're they're secular for the most part, but they're still very traditionally. I mean, because you were saying that the woman couldn't say that she had been raped because so that's Yazidi women. That's Yazidi. That that's Yazidi women, yes. which is a sect of Kurdish. Yes, uh, and also you have to understand that before it's not like uh, the Kurdish women were not equal to men. So, if we separate the story just to put things in order. So Yazidi women uh, that were raped are not allowed to talk about it. They're not even allowed to take the, their children back home with them, children that are were born out of rape. And Kurdish women uh, also uh, have years of being, um, of being not equal and depressed by men, suppressed by men. And now... Oppressed. Yeah? Oppressed. Oppressed by yeah. men. And now... All the, all the shitty press. <laughs> And now they are able to fight back and to have their... And what's really interesting is that they not only it's them that have a mind shift, it's also the men. They are able to educate the men. I interviewed men. I didn't show any men in my last piece. As we chose not to. We decided it's a story of women and only women are going to tell it. But I did interview a lot of men about it. And they were saying, yes, something is happening and they deserve it. And we now have to give them their place because they earned it. And we're not, they said, we're not giving them rights. They took their rights. And now it's theirs. <laughs> that sounds like, like we didn't give it to them if we, if we could have <laughs> chose differently. But again, those are Kurdish men. Yes. So are there non-Yazidi Kurdish women that were sold into sex slavery? There are non-Yazidi that were sold into sex slavery. Like I told you in Dirazur, there were women... Again, for ISIS, any woman that is not uh, Arab and uh, and Sunni, which is what they are, is not a person. So she's mm -hmm. she can do she can be anything. And are there Yazidi uh, women who? I forgot my question. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to ask something the other way around, but I don't remember. But the the thing very complicated. Right? Yeah, it yeah. is. It is extremely complicated. But the thing that is a little bit misleading in the end of the day. The courts, they represent, like, it's almost an anecdote. You know what I'm saying? It's not. It's not, and I will tell you why. Okay. How, how many are there? Uh, well, in this area specifically, there are two million, but okay. there are more in the world. But it's not an anecdote, and I will tell you why. Because in this federation I told you about, it's called Rojava, that the Kurds uh, started in northern Syria, and it's been going on for a few years now. Um, there's not only Kurds. Everyone are welcomed, and that's part of the amazing thing about it, that they have Arabs, and they have Kurds, and they have Yazidi, and they have Christians, and whoever wants to join is welcome, and everyone has the same rights, and everyone are equal, and it's a democracy, and women are like men. Who's, the, who's in charge? So their leader is called uh, Abdallah Julan. He's uh, a Kurd that is arrest was arrested and is now in Turkey because Turkey considered them to be a terror organization. But he wrote uh, his Bible and, and he said, this is how the new country is going to look like. But the thing is, it, sooner or later, Assad will basically march in and butcher everyone and reconquer the area. And this, will, this can end pretty easily. 
right? Uh, well, no, you're very pessimist. Uh, I understand <laughs> why you're worried. You're not the first to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, realistically. So, well, that's a, a good question. I tell you what, as long as the U.S. is there and I saw their forces there, you're not allowed to film them, but there, there's a lot of units there. As long as the Americans stay there, it's kind of a guarantee everything will be okay. Insurance. And it's not only because it's the moral thing. It's the right thing to do. It's also a strategic goal, right? To have another democracy in the Middle East, in the middle between Iraq and Turkey and Syria and not so uh, far away from Iran. It's a really good place to have an ally, not only for Israel, <laughs> but especially for America, right? And that's part of why they uh, entered this thing anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but with the current state of affairs and the U.S. president today, I mean, things are kind of, he's kind of fickle. Tomorrow he could be like, you know, well, what he, are these guys giving me? Well, you he know? already tweeted that uh, the U.S. is going to pull out of Syria. Mm-hmm. But uh, right after he said that, the Pentagon said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. That would be a really bad mistake. So I hope that it looks like when Trump says something or tweets something, then someone comes and say, maybe you want to take a nap and talk about it again later. And then he changes his mind, right? Yeah. So also, I hope. <laughs> can you tell us uh, without breaking censorship uh, rules, if there is any connection between Israel and the Kurdish who fought? Okay. So in Syria, I don't know of such connection in Iraq. Uh, I think it was published. Uh, if not, someone will arrest us. Uh, yeah, I think it was. Pub- no, no, it was published that Israel had connections with the Iraqi Kurds at some point in history. And I would say anything about today. Uh, in Syria, not yet, but it's a good time to start building connections with them because they don't have a reason why not to. I mean, they knew I work for an Israeli um, media and they let me in. Right, and they have nothing against us. Who do you mean, like the the Syrian opposition? No, the, the Kurdish Kurds? authority. Ah, the Kurds. They're so lost. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, so many different factions. I can't keep track of it. Oh, the Iraqi. <laughs> Wait, the the Chinese? <laughs> well, I hope not only people who understand about Syria are gonna hear this podcast because it's uh, a little complicated. But, yeah. But you know, that's part of our job to try to make to simplify things. Mm-hmm, and yeah. lucky for me, our I work on TV, so usually I use maps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, animation. Yeah, and, and that but, helps but explain the situation. But when you went situation. around, like, uh, Iraq, for example, and someone was like, where are you from? No, I would not say. You wouldn't say? Of course How not. come? Because people on the street are not fans of Israel. It's okay if uh, the authorities say it's okay you come in, but it doesn't mean that people are the happy average. about Israel. People were living... Like, if I'm talking about Syria, people were living under Assad regime right. for so many years. The so Kurdish people in that region. All of the people. Yeah, and they were brainwashed. The exactly. And they, they talked to me about it. They said, uh, we, when we grew up, Israel was the devil. But now we understand Assad is the devil. So, mm-hmm. And so. yet, you couldn't tell them where you're from. No, because I wouldn't take the risk. Yeah, it's, it's, with some people, like, I did. With people you trust and like you have dinner driver? with. Of course. Of he course. knew where you were from. Of course. Yes. And the driver. translator. The driver is also the armed man that's with you in the vehicle. He should be able to defend you and know where you're from in advance. Yeah, but I mean, you could lie. 
No, I, I wouldn't. There are some people that you have to decide you're going to trust. That's part of, of how it is in those places. And it's also you have to make as much research as you can in advance to make sure that those few people that you do tell them everything about yourself are the right people to do right. so. But that's, I mean, in life, you can kind of take that leap of faith because the worst that could happen is, I don't know, you get cheated on or I don't know, you know, but in these areas is it really worth like giving your trust out well again we did a lot of research before we did and the first thing that uh the fixer told me when we arrived was i hope it's okay i'm I'm, uh, exposing him but the first thing he said to me was you know you are like us you were uh pressed by arabs all the time and we don't like arabs uh, I, I do right, but he said we don't like Arabs, and I'm done with Islam now. After ISIS, I don't want to hear anything about Islam. So shalom to you. That's what he said. So after you hear that, you say okay. So it's Faglin shit, <laughs> right? <laughs> Here to say that would be well. He really... suffered. He suffered a lot. <laughs> so, so that's it's his ama- It's it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. You can't you can't talk about these things here in Israel and not get political. I guess it's so relevant. Um, How so to our lives? Because people like first of all, you have people who believe in the cause of uh, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi in the territories and in Gaza and in Jordan and in Egypt in Sinai. They're all around us. Uh, most of the Palestinians are Sunni, are uh, Sunni, so they're. Um, like in theory, they're um, they have potential to be enchanted by these ideologies in the future, and in the end of the day, the cultures are similar. Many Palestinians came from Syria; it's the the background, and and you know many right wingers here in Israel say basically, if we're not fierce, we this will be our end too. Like I said before, so so it to mm-hmm. me, it's it's very political. When I when I see such article uh, like yours, uh, I can't help. Vlad has a no comment look on her <laughs> <Yeah>. face. <laughs> That's but the classic. Were no you comment. were you ever in in concrete danger? Um, I don't think so this time. Well, again, danger is is a very. Uh, I mean, one minute you can be safe, and then the next you're not. I can say that the most the place when i felt like unsafe uh the most in this trip was when i we went to araka there they told us nothing about israel nothing 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 and i had to wear a hijab which yeah. is the first time in my career i had to uh, cover my head when i'm going How does into it feel <laughs> it actually felt like uh, protecting because I felt like I'm someone else a little bit. Like a Mossad agent. Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> Not so. I wouldn't go that far. But I felt like I'm one of the people in the suite, which makes it easier. Although I did have a camera, which makes me special. Um, but we couldn't stay in one place more than like two or three minutes. If you saw the piece, so you saw all of our shooting is when we are moving, mm-hmm. which is not something you usually want to do, right? You want to sit down, put a tripod, take some beauty shots, and this place is just overwhelming. You really want to film everything around you because i never seen such a destruction and I could never imagine such a destruction. And carrying a camera is dangerous. 
Yeah, they don't really, uh, they're not big fan of uh, of the media, especially Western. And that there I didn't feel safe, but we took uh, cautious, right? We, we were really aware of what was going on. We tried to keep moving all the time. We didn't have deep, long interviews with people on the street. Wherever there was starting to be crowd around us, we left. Mm-hmm. So, and we were only there for a few hours. And we didn't stay after the sun went down, which we were uh, told in advance not to. So... And aren't the roads between the big cities, like, scary as hell? Um, roads is a big word for... <laughs> <laughs> you just... Yeah, it's like... If, uh, if the jeep breaks down, no, exactly. no one will come. Um, yes, but again, I was... It's not the first time I do something like this. It's a risk you're taking. You're taking it. You're thinking about it before. You have all the, you know, you try to think about everything. Not to drive at night. Um, take a good car. Pay a little extra and take a good car. And you trust the people that are with you. You said it's really, it's like a leap of faith. It's more than that. They really want us to tell their story. And that's what I'm doing. I'm telling their story. So I think like, yes, they also owe me. Like I owe them, I trust them. So They it seems me. like almost like a self-interest thing because you're trying to tell them their story. And in order to get their story, you need their trust. And in order to get their trust, you need to give them trust. That's true. So meaning if you lie to them, you might get lies in return. Right. That's I a see. good way to put it. So, but in one of your pieces, there was footage of you. I want to go back to the whole danger thing. In one of the, your pieces, there was... <laughs> of course you do. Yeah, you know, we're guys. Uh, <laughs> so, in one of your pieces, there was footage of you, of people, of, of warfare, of uh, gunfire. And, uh, is that archive footage or is that <laughs> something that you filmed? Uh, that was in Mosul. I told you I was in the front line there. And yes, they were shooting at me. At so you. What's... I mean... I don't, not met me specifically. They didn't know I was there, thank God, okay. but right next to me. Because yeah. it's like, you know, like the war photographers or war journalists, it's, it, it seems like such a thing of like, you know, it's so yesterday. It's like today you can, you know, the people on the front line even have phones. No, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm just saying you could think of it as being so yesterday because people on the front line have phones. We could find this stuff on Facebook kind of decorate our article with so like why, why put yourself it? on the front line so i do not agree with you at all because i think that war correspondent is actually the only kind of journalism that's going to survive and stay in the future and i explain it is old-fashioned uh putting yourself in the field and taking the risk but first of all i think that's the only real journalism it doesn't matter if it has to be in the battlefield or in another uh, place right but you have to be there present because like i told you reading about mosul i heard that it's going to be conquered in a few weeks and it's going to be so easy and they have so many forces there what's the problem they're going to crush isis but only when i was there i realized this is so far from the truth and isis is a huge thing it's a huge terror organization that's something that people didn't like miscalculated before they thought it's going to be very easy and then you understand that how deep the threat is and how strong their ide- ideology is you're not fighting just these people they are really they're staying in like the last house they're gonna fight till the end and it's a different picture than what you get from social network that Kurds for example do not uh, publish how many casualties they have that's their thing mm-hmm. so they don't want to hurt their uh, morale so you wouldn't know 
But what I'm saying is, and maybe it's because I don't understand the nature of things and how they, how it happens there and how things go down. But what I'm saying is you could fly to Mosul and, you know, stay wherever you're staying and kind of gather the information, but not be on the front lines. Is it that all of a sudden war breaks out where you, or do you choose to go out to the front line? And if that's the scenario, then why that? I think it's really depend again on um, which story you want to tell and what you're focusing on. So I told you this time I only flew now because now there is no ice there and I didn't go to any front line. And uh, tomorrow, who knows? So right. That's but, the right time. So for me, it was like, I'm going to tell the story about Araka. I'm going to tell the story about the woman revolution. This is like a chance for me, a window of opportunity in time that I'm going to go there and, and see what's going on. And I, I don't need anyone shooting at me. Thank you. But la my last trip was about the war. And it's really hard to tell the story of the war if you're not there. Yeah. So what's the lesson to be to be learned for us Western society? You're not society? convinced. No, no, I, I am. <laughs> I'm just, just like to contemplate about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine like it's voluntarily. Just, we would never do that. We I mean, would never do. I would never do that. He for sure. No, I would have at no, one wouldn't. point in my life. I was hoping to be put on the front lines when I was 18, and I was stupid, and I was like, I'm not calling you stupid, but <laughs> no, I, but when I was 18, and I was like, I look back now, and I'm like, I was this this like uh, indoctrinated young ole that was like i want to i want to you know i want to fight the war but now i'm like thank god they didn't send me well i i think we started this uh with talking about my experience and what really touched me and meeting these women so for me going there and seeing how they are liberated it's everything mm -hmm. and bringing their stories that's what i want to do so i think if you really believe in something, if you're really passionate about it, then you go ahead and do it. And I also feel like people appreciate it. That's Yeah, it, there was a lot of hype here. And and I can also see it from, these, yeah, uh, I articles. see how people are reacting. They are, they, first of all, I love what they're asking me because they're asking me like, so wait, who's the Yazidi? Who's the Kurds? What does it mean? What happened to these women? What's going to happen now? What's, and it's like, Thank God someone is taking interest in this place because it's like you said, it's so close and still people are ignoring it most of the time. And if I wasn't there and I wouldn't bring it back to Ulpanchishi, which is primetime Israel news channel, then people wouldn't hear about it probably. So for me, that's that's what I'm, so, I'm supposed to do. No, so, I think I, th I, I just I, I want to what I'm saying he has is, to say the last word. I'm playing, no, I'm playing <laughs> devil's advocate. I really think that you're extremely courageous and brave and i think that most people today that have like that are telling the story of you know victims around the world are and we talked about this yesterday are kind of looking for a distraction from their own lives most people who you know and you're kitzel you're taking the writ you're, you're putting your meaning you're not just it's not just talk like you're going there and you're and putting yourself in the face of danger. And I have to tell you, I have a very, very comfortable life. Yeah. Most comfortable there is, I think. And I'm a very lucky person. And there's nothing that's hunting me uh, except my need to tell stories that I think are meaningful. And, you know, I think it's also the way to, to fight fake news and the problem with uh, people not trusting journalists anymore. And I feel that too, you know, people saying, we don't need you, we have social media, and you are all biased, and, and here. So I'm, I'm doing the effort for you, mm -hmm. so 
here is your chance to to listen and really believe what I'm doing because I'm I do my fact checking and to see professional work. Um, so what's the lesson to be learned for Western society, for Israelis, for whoever watches or hears the story of, of these women? Right. What's the moral here for you? So first of all, I just have to say, because uh, we're broadcasted in, in America, that what was scary for me in Iraq is to realize how the U.S. and the coalition forces just flattened the place from the sky without uh, warning the civilians there before. And I just think about us in Israel, if we would do something even, I don't what know. What year is that? That was a year and a half ago. And I'm just thinking about doing that. And, and that was Iraq. It, it also happened in Mosul. And MNST said that there were more than 7,000 people who died, uh, civilians, by, by the coalition bombing from the air, which are people that lived under ISIS. They suffered enough. And I think that's an important lesson. And I talked to someone uh, about it, and he said that's exactly the difference between a small country like Israel and uh, a power, like a, a huge power like, um, like the U.S., that they can do it. But... Seeing the city from the ground, it's really shocking. And that's something that I think should take out of under consideration. I'm not saying you're not supposed to help. I'm not saying it was a bad thing to liberate Araka. But someone had to think about also the people that are living there before bombing the place. So that's a first thing that I came back with that was really shocking and, and I think important. And I also s talked about it Just in my piece. Just to put things in proportions, again, to be the devil's advocates, it's, it's nothing against what Assad has been doing. Of course, but we are supposed to yeah, be... We, more moral, we, more... They yeah. came to liberate the people, right. yeah. not only... Yeah. Uh, to uh, defeat not ISIS, it, okay. Uh, If you're coming for the people, yeah. help the people. Not only just think about the goal to defeat ISIS. Right. There is more to it. Um, another thing is that you think about it that if the world uh, did care sooner, we wouldn't have this refugee crisis now in Europe. Uh, so that's another thing that you know people start thinking about it. It's already been eight years since the war started in Syria. Where is where were there? Uh, where are they now? Yeah. Uh, so that's, uh, I think, my second lesson. And the third one is, if I can be optimistic, <laughs> I think that it's amazing to see how in the worst place on earth something good can grow out of it, how extreme situation can actually make people do amazing things. And this is what happened with the women in northern Syria, and I think that's a great lesson for all of us to learn. Nice. I think that's a good place. I to... have one last question. <laughs> Is there a chance that the article uh, will be with English subtitles? I hope so. I have some. Uh, one of them already is. And okay. So those we have, we'll put links. And those we don't just follow. How can people like follow you? You have Twitter or something? I do have Twitter, Frat Lactor. And I have Facebook page. And Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so oh, before we go. Yes. Before we go, guys, we do a collaboration with the Jewish Journal, uh, jewishjournal.com. Uh, so check them out. They have podcasts. They have great columns. Uh, so read. Have you heard of the Jewish Journal? Of course I did. So, uh, so check them out, guys, jewishjournal.com. And we accept donations, so please help us out. We do this on our free time, so go to 2njb.com slash donate and help us out. That's it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank guys. You. It's been amazing. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye.